Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Today, as part of our inspiring TED Talk series, spotlighting can't miss TED Talks and their key takeaways, I explore Tim Harford's famous 2011 TED Talk, Trial, Error, and the God Complex. Welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I'm excited to be with you again today for our inspiring TED Talk episode. This week, I'll be exploring Tim Harford's famous 2011 TED Talk, Trial, Error, and the God Complex. If the title of Tim Harford's TED Talk doesn't pique your interest, nothing will. Harford, an economics writer who studies complex systems, talks about the importance of trial and error in achieving success except he doesn't just talk about it, but presents the findings of his studies on complex systems. As the title suggests, Harford's talk centers on the concept of a God complex, refusing to admit the possibility of being wrong regardless of the complexity of the situation, and the importance of trial and error in achieving better results. Go down the list, virtually every successful business leader used trial and error to perfect their craft. I'll catch you on the flip side of this first clip. It's the Second World War, a German prison camp, and this man, Archie Cochrane, is a prisoner of war and a doctor, and he has a problem. The problem is that the men under his care are suffering from an excruciating and debilitating condition that Archie doesn't really understand. The symptoms are this horrible swelling up of fluid under the skin, but he doesn't know whether it's an infection, whether it's to do with malnutrition, he doesn't know how to cure it. And he's operating in a hostile environment. And people do terrible things in wars. Uh, the German camp guards, they've got bored. They're taken to just firing into the prison camp at random for fun. On one particular occasion, one of the guards threw a grenade into the prisoner's lavatory while it was full of prisoners. He said he heard suspicious laughter. And Archie Cochran, as the camp doctor, was one of the first men in to clear up the mess. On one more thing. Archie was suffering from this illness himself. So the situation seemed pretty desperate, uh, but Archie Cochran was a resourceful person. He'd already smuggled vitamin C into the camp, and now he managed to get hold of supplies of Marmite on the black market. Now, some of you will be wondering what Marmite is. 
Uh, Marmite is a breakfast spread, beloved of the British. Um, it looks like crude oil. It tastes um, zesty. <laughs> and importantly, uh, it's a rich source of vitamin B12. So Archie splits the men uh, under his care as best he can into two equal groups. He gives half of them vitamin C. He gives half of them vitamin B12. He very carefully and meticulously notes his results in an exercise book. And after just a few days, it becomes clear that whatever is causing this illness, Marmite is the cure. So Cochrane then goes to the Germans who are running the prison camp. Now, you've got to imagine at the moment, forget this photo, imagine this guy with this, this long ginger beard and this shock of red hair. He hasn't been able to shave. A sort of Billy Connolly figure. Cochrane starts ranting at these Germans in this Scottish accent. In fluent German, by the way, but in a Scottish accent. And it explains to them how German culture was the culture that gave Schiller and Goethe to the world, and he can't understand how this barbarism can be tolerated, and he vents his frustrations. And then he goes back to his quarters, breaks down and weeps, because he's convinced that the situation is hopeless. But a young German doctor picks up Archie Cochrane's exercise book and says to his colleagues, this evidence is incontrovertible. If we don't supply vitamins to the prisoners, it's a war crime. And the next morning, supplies of vitamin B12 are delivered to the camp, and the prisoners begin to recover. Now, I, I'm not telling you this story because I think Archie Cochrane is a dude, although Archie Cochrane is a dude. <laughs> I'm not even telling you this story because I think we should be running you know, more carefully controlled, randomized trials in all aspects of public policy, although I think that would also be completely awesome. I'm telling you this story because Archie Cochrane, all his life, fought against a terrible affliction. And he realized it was debilitating to individuals, and it was corrosive to societies. And he had a name for it. He called it the God Complex. I really appreciate this compelling opening story as he's laying the groundwork for what he titles the God Complex. So in this story, I mean, a horrific uh, time period and, and series of events, right? Uh, the kind of situation nobody uh, hopes to ever find themselves in. You have prisoners of war, you have Nazi Germany, uh, you have uh, war crimes and, and people being uh, mistreated. And amidst all of this chaos, amidst all of uh, this horrible environment, you have an individual who realizes that we need to be doing something more. He, he saw the mistreatment of, of the prisoners and this horrible disease, and he realized that we needed to do something different. And he took it upon himself to investigate. Uh, he, he didn't think he had it all figured out. Rather, he, he took the time uh, to meticulously track and, and observe and take notes, and then he used his findings to go and try to convince others of what needed to happen in order to resolve the problem. Uh, in this case, the specific condition, the, the, uh, the disease that w inflicted uh, or afflicted the, the prisoners. He 
he was proactive about it. He took the steps necessary to respond to it. And he was able to convince people to put in, in place the necessary uh, steps to make sure that the prisoners were at least taken care of in that regard. Now, we could uh, debate uh, about uh, the, the conditions of war and uh, prisoners of war and war crimes and everything else associated with this horrible uh, ordeal. Uh, but at the crux of everything that he's sharing at the beginning of this TED Talk, it is that we cannot succumb to the intellectual arrogance that so commonly um, afflicts individuals who think they know everything. Uh, they, they think they understand what, what problems are, and they won't willingly ask themselves the question, what don't I know? What do I need to investigate? And, and challenge their own thinking. And that's what he calls the, the God complex, people who think they have it all figured out, people who think that they don't need to further challenge their own understanding of the world around them, whether it's in relation to medicine and the health of individuals or whatever. And as it pertains to this podcast today, uh, I think this has definite implications for leaders because so often leaders think they have it all figured out. They think they are in their position because of the success that they've had, which, you know, is largely true. Um, but they, they, they then take that to the next level and they think that others need to listen to them and their expertise. And rather than leaning on the expertise of those around them, rather than doing the hard work and the research that's necessary to come to good conclusions and to, to drive and implement good policies and practices, they lean on their own biases, they lean on their own background, and they don't continue to try to challenge and stretch and grow. And that is a problem. That leads to intellectual arrogance rather than intellectual humility. And you start to think that you, you know it all. That's the God complex. And that's what we have to, to fight against. Now, I can describe the symptoms of the God complex very, very easily. So the symptoms of the God complex are... Uh, no matter how complicated the problem, you have an absolutely overwhelming uh, belief uh, that you are infallibly right in your solution. Now, Archie was a doctor, so he hung around with doctors a lot, and doctors suffer from the God complex a lot. Now, I'm an economist, I'm not a doctor, but I see the God complex around me all the time in my fellow economists, I see it in our business leaders, I see it in the politicians we vote for, People who, in the face of an incredibly complicated world, are nevertheless absolutely convinced that they understand the way that the world works. And you know, with, with the future billions that we've been hearing about, the world is simply far too complex to understand in that way. I mean, let, let me give you an example. Imagine for a moment that instead of Tim Harford in front of you, uh, there was Hans Rosling presenting his graphs. You know Hans, you know, the, the, the Mick Jagger of TED. And he'd, he'd be showing you these amazing statistics, these amazing animations, and they, they are brilliant, it's wonderful work. But a typical Hans Rosling graph, think for a moment not what it shows, but think instead about what it leaves out. So it'll show you GDP per capita, population, longevity, that's about it. So three pieces of data for each country. Three pieces of data. Three pieces of data is nothing. I mean, have a look at this graph. This is produced by the physicist Cesar Hidalgo. He's at MIT. And you won't be able to understand a word of it. You know, just 
This is what it looks like. Cesar has trawled a database of uh, over 5,000 different products. And he's used techniques of network analysis to interrogate this database and to graph relationships between the different products. And it's wonderful, wonderful work. You show all these interconnections, all these interrelations. Uh, and I think it'll be profoundly useful in understanding how it is that economies grow. Brilliant work. Um, Cesar and I uh, tried to write a piece for the New York Times magazine explaining how this worked. And what we learned was Cesar's work is far too good to explain in the New York Times magazine. <laughs> but 5,000 products, that's still nothing. 5,000 products. Imagine counting every product category in Cesar Hidalgo's data. Imagine you had one second per product category. In about the length of this session, you would have counted all 5,000. Now, imagine doing the same thing for every different type of product on sale in Walmart. There are 100,000 there. It would take you all day. Now imagine trying to count every different specific product and service on sale in a major economy such as Tokyo, London, or New York. It's even more difficult in Edinburgh because you have to count all the whiskey and the tartan. Okay? <laughs> if you wanted to count every product and service on offer in New York, there are 10 billion of them, it would take you 317 years. This is how complex the economy we've created is. And I'm just counting toasters here. I'm not trying to solve the Middle East problem. I mean, this is the, the complexity here is unbelievable. On oh, just a, a piece of context, the societies in which our brains evolved had about 300 products and services. You can count them in five minutes. So this is the complexity of the world that surrounds us. This perhaps is why we find the God complex so tempting. We tend to sort of retreat and say, oh, we can draw a picture, we can show some graphs, and we get it. We understand how this works, and we don't. We never do. So the number one symptom of the God complex is that you have this overwhelming belief in your own infallibility, that you have it all figured out, that you understand the complexities, and that nobody else does, so everyone should be looking to you as the expert, the person with all of the answers. Now, that is a rather absurd notion that oh, a single person could have all of the answers and that they would know better than everyone else. Uh, there's so much research to show how important it is to get diverse opinions and diverse uh, perspectives involved in the decision-making process. So you have to set all that aside, first of all, to be able to really buy into the God complex. You really have to believe that you are smarter more capable than the collective genius of everyone else around you and everyone else's expertise. But this notion that you are infallible in some way. Now, leaders, you know, would certainly say that they're fallible. They would certainly admit that, yes, they make mistakes. But in practice, the way that decisions are made, the, the, the way that strategies are moved forward and implemented if you essentially believe that you are the one that has it all figured out, then that causes all sorts of problems down the line in the organization. It causes all sorts of problems for other leaders uh, at different levels of the organization, as well as the line employees. Uh, you're not developing or creating, generating buy-in to uh, your decision or the strategy, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Uh, and, and simply, uh, your, your solution isn't going to be as good. Uh, it, it's just the, the, the fact of the matter. 
And the real danger when someone has a God complex and they, they think they have it all figured out, the, the, the real danger is that they can actually cause immense harm uh, to the organization, to their people, to the consumers, uh, even while they have all of the best intentions uh, and they, they believe, truly believe that they have the answers for all of the challenges facing the organization. That is extremely dangerous because there is good intention there, but it's not coupled with intellectual humility or leadership humility and the ability then to go out and find others who can contribute and, and help refine your way of thinking. So if I think I'm infallible or even anywhere close to it, uh, then, then I have started the process of, of really uh, setting myself up and my, my organization up for failure, and that's going to negatively impact uh, so many people. In this clip, he also shares some examples of different points of data. Uh, traditional graphs that show maybe three, four uh, pieces of data uh, and how overly simplistic that is. It's necessarily simplistic, right? We can't, uh, we can't portray the complexity of the world around us in an understandable way on a graph, for example, and show the millions of data points that are actually interacting with each other. So we, of course, simplify. We, we break it down. We, we come up with, uh, with various uh, approaches that, that help make sense uh, of a complex world, different models, different visualizations, u- utilizing uh, a smaller number of data points. And he starts to illustrate that even if, even if we had counted up all the different products within a very simple economy, that how complex that would be. And that's just within a simple economy. And you start to to uh, extend that argument and you start to think about everything that goes into our decision-making processes uh, from our chemistry, our brain chemistry, our upbringing, uh, all of the options that are available to us, the interconnectedness of the world and, and all of the geopolitical socioeconomic dynamics. It's so incredibly complex. And for anyone to think that they have it all figured out, uh, it, it's just the height of height of absurdity. And we need to really challenge and battle that notion. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership 
will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Now, I, I'm not trying to deliver a nihilistic message here. I'm not trying to say we, we can't solve complicated problems in a complicated world. We clearly can, but the way we solve them is with humility to abandon the God complex and to actually use a problem-solving technique that works. And we, we have a problem-solving technique that works. Now, you show me a successful, complex system, and I will show you a system that has evolved through trial and error. Here's an example. This baby was produced through trial and error. I realize that's an ambiguous statement. Uh, maybe I should clarify it. This baby, it's a human body. It evolved. What is evolution? Over millions of years, variation and selection. Variation and selection. Trial and error. Trial and error. And it's not just biological systems that produce miracles through trial and error. And you could use it in an industrial context. So let's say, let's say you wanted to make detergent. Let's say you're Unilever and you want to make detergent in a factory near Liverpool. How do you do it? Well, you have this great big tank full of liquid detergent. You pump it at high pressure through a nozzle. You create a spray of detergent. Then the spray dries, it turns into powder, it falls to the floor, you scoop it up, you put it in cardboard boxes, you sell it at a supermarket, you make lots of money. How do you design that nozzle? Turns out to be very important. Now, if you ascribe to the God complex, what you do is you find yourself a little God. You find yourself a mathematician, you find yourself a physicist, somebody who understands the dynamics of this fluid, and uh, he will or she will calculate the optimal design of the nozzle. Now, Unilever did this, and it didn't work. Too complicated. Even this problem, too complicated. But the geneticist, Professor Steve Jones, describes how Unilever actually did solve this problem. Trial and error, variation and selection. You take a nozzle, and you create 10 random variations on the nozzle. You try out all 10. You keep the one that works best. You create 10 variations on that one. You try out all 10. You keep the one that works best. You try out 10 variations on that one. You see how this works, right? And after 45 generations, you have this incredible nozzle, looks a bit like a chess piece, functions absolutely brilliantly. We have no idea why it works. No idea at all. But the moment you step back from the God complex and you say, let's just try a bunch of stuff, let's have a systematic way of determining what's working and what's not, you can solve your problem. So humility is essential to being able to tackle the most complex problems that we face in the world. And it certainly is possible to learn as we go and to be able to tackle complex problems. In fact, that's how systems are created. So when we take a systems thinking mindset and equity design thinking mindset to approach the most perplexing, challenging um, obstacles that we face in society and in our organizations, we, we are better equipped to really recognize all the components, all the variables, and to start making meaningful progress 
But even then, because of the complexity, we can never know everything. We can never know all of the variables. We can never measure all of them effectively. And so even then, there comes it comes back to this component of trial and error. If we have intellectual humility, then we have to go through an iterative learning process and we have to go through trial and error. And in fact, that's what the scientific method is. When we employ the scientific method, we are testing hypotheses and a lot of times it doesn't work out, but we learn from the failures. We, we step on the backs and upon uh, the successes of those that came before us and we're able to, over time to to respond to incredibly complex, challenging issues because we fail, we fail fast, we fall forward, we learn from our mistakes, from the, from the uh, failures that occur, and through that trial and error, we are able to figure out how things work and how to move things along in, in a positive manner. And frankly, sometimes when we are using a trial and error kind of an approach, we will luck into a solution and we won't even really know why it works, but it works. And, and then we can reverse engineer it and we can learn even more. So there's so much to be had from trial and error. And that can only happen when we take a systems thinking approach, we utilize a scientific method, which fundamentally requires intellectual humility. Now, this process of trial and error is actually far more common in successful institutions than we care to recognize. And we, we've heard a lot about how economies function. Now, the US economy is still the world's greatest economy. How did it become the world's greatest economy? I, I mean, I could, um, I could give you all kinds of facts and figures about the US economy, but I think the most salient one is this. 10% of American businesses disappear every year. That is a huge failure rate. It's far higher than the failure rate for, say, you know, Americans. 10% of Americans don't disappear every year, which leads us to conclude you know, American businesses fail faster than Americans, and therefore American businesses are evolving faster than Americans, and you know, eventually they'll have evolved to such a high peak of perfection that they will make us all their pets if, of course, they haven't already done so. <laughs> I sometimes wonder. Um, but it's this process of trial and error that explains you know, th this great divergence, this incredible performance of Western economies. It didn't come because you put some incredibly smart person in charge. It's come through trial and error. Now, I've been sort of banging on about this for the last couple of months. And people sometimes say to me, oh, well, Tim, it's kind of obvious. You know, obviously, trial and error is very important. Obviously, experimentation is very important. You know, why, are you, why are you just sort of wandering around saying this obvious thing? And I say, OK, fine. You think it's obvious. I will admit it's obvious when schools start teaching children that there are some problems that don't have a correct answer. Stop giving them lists of uh, questions, every single one of which has an answer, and there's an authority figure in the corner behind the teacher's desk who knows all the answers, and if you can't find the answers, you must be lazy or stupid. When schools stop doing that all the time, I will admit that, yes, it's obvious that trial and error is a good thing. When a politician stands up campaigning for elected office and says, I want to fix our health system, I want to fix our education system, I have no idea how to do it. 
I've got a, a half a dozen ideas. We're going to test them out. They'll probably all fail. Then we'll test some other ideas out. We'll find some that work. We'll build on those. We'll get rid of the ones that don't. When a politician campaigns on that platform, and more importantly, when voters like you and me are willing to vote for that kind of politician, then I will admit that it is obvious that trial and error works, and that thank you. Until then, until then, I'm going to keep banging on about trial and error and why we should abandon the God complex. Because it's, it's so hard to admit our own infallibility. It's so uncomfortable. And Archie Cochran understood this as well as anybody. What do you think? Is trial and error obvious? It certainly is simple. It's not complex. And so when you're facing complex challenges, to propose such a simple solution may seem counterintuitive. But I don't think it's uh, obvious because it goes against the grain of the way society functions. Uh, particularly in Western society, we are all about control. We're all about uh, trying, at least creating this facade that we can predict what's going to happen and that we have control over what is going to happen. And if we have a, a good enough strategic plan and we, we lead in just the exact right ways and we have the exact right policies and the, this, the right structures and designs in the workplace, that everything will magically unfold the way we plan. And that's utter nonsense. Uh, that Human beings are just far too complicated for that to be the case. And environmental systems and social systems are far too complicated for us to just be able to, to know what's going to happen. There are just too many variables. Um, but yet that is the facade that politicians uh, display, that organizational leaders often display. They think that they need to project confidence and they think that they need to project uh, that they have the answers. Otherwise, they'll be replaced with someone else who projects that confidence. And, you know, they, they, they may actually be right in that regard. Maybe that's the way politics work in, uh, in the United States, for example. Maybe they will be replaced by someone who shares that level of certainty uh, with someone who conveys that level of certainty uh, to the populace. Maybe within organizations we, we promote uh, people who, who project confidence and have a level of certainty. But that's part of the problem, isn't it? That's, that, that really just uh, addresses the main point, that we have this facade and we reward people uh, when they project certainty and confidence uh, and, and when they claim to have the answers. And it's nonsense. That just isn't the way it works. And when we uh, express some vulnerability and we express uncertainty, then oftentimes we pay the price for it. And the way he describes it in the, in the schools, I think is a really excellent point because he's absolutely right. In school, there is one right answer. And how many teachers allow for divergent thinking? How many teachers allow for, let alone encourage people to come up with their own creative solutions? It just doesn't happen hardly ever certainly not in the K through 12 system in the United States, but when you think about uh, universities and, and students in the university space, so many professors and so many students in those classes, again, they're expected to have one right answer. 
Now, I'm a university professor. I, I teach, and very purposely, I try to not um, be overly prescriptive in the types of assignments that I give to students, and I try to keep them wide open, give them enough scaffolding that the students can know what's expected, they know how to succeed, but ultimately they have to figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to respond to the question. And there isn't one right answer. But that doesn't always happen. And and frankly, our uh, our students and our people in our organizations are often ill-equipped to be able to deal with that uncertainty. And so they, they continue to perpetuate the facade. They continue to throw their support behind people who project certainty and leaders uh, continue to to uh, move that kind of an agenda forward. And we have to disrupt this. We have to find ways that we can get people to, to recognize the importance of intellectual humility. Uh, as, as one author put it, the sin of certainty, uh, that it, it leads to God complex. Rather, we need to fail often. We need trial and error in order to tackle the most complex problems. And when we do that, we will iteratively make much more progress than when we claim to, to have a plan in place that's going to allow us to be successful. I mean, there's this one um, trial he ran many years after World War II. He wanted to test out um, the question of where is it that patients should recover from uh, heart attacks? Should they recover in a, in a specialized cardiac unit in hospital or should they recover at home? All the cardiac doctors tried to shut him down. They had the God complex in spades. They knew that their hospitals were the right place for patients, and they knew it was very unethical to run any kind of trial or experiment. Nevertheless, Archie managed to get permission to do this. He ran his trial, and after the trial had been running for a little while, he gathered together all his colleagues around this, uh, the table, and he said, well, gentlemen, we have some preliminary results. They are not statistically significant, uh, but you know, we have something, and it turns out you're right, and I'm wrong. It is dangerous for patients to recover from heart attacks at home. They should be in hospital. And there's this uproar, and all the doctors start pounding the table and saying, we always said you're unethical, Archie. You're killing people with your clinical trials. You need to shut it down now. Shut it down at once. And there's all this huge hubbub. Archie lets it die down. And then he says, well, that's very interesting, gentlemen, because when I gave you the table of results, I swapped the two columns around. It turns out your hospitals are killing people, and they should be at home. Would you like to close down the trial now, or shall we wait until we have robust results? Tumbleweed <laughs> rolls through, <laughs> through the meeting room. But you know, Cochrane would do that kind of thing. And the reason he would do that kind of thing is because he understood. It feels so much better to stand there and say, yeah, in my own little world, I am a god, I understand everything. I do not want to have my opinions challenged. I do not want to have my conclusions tested. It feels so much more comfortable simply to lay down the law. Cochrane understood that uncertainty, that fallibility, that being challenged, they hurt. And you sometimes need to be shocked out of that. Now, I'm not going to pretend that this is easy. It isn't easy. It's incredibly painful. 
And since I started talking about this subject and researching this subject, I've been really haunted by something a Japanese mathematician said on the subject. So shortly after the war, this young man, uh, Yutaka Taniyama, developed this amazing conjecture called the Taniyama Shimura conjecture. It turned out to be absolutely instrumental many decades later in proving Fermat's last theorem. In fact, it turns out it's equivalent to proving Fermat's last theorem. You prove one, you prove the other. But it was always a conjecture. Taniyama tried and tried and tried, and he could never prove that it was true. And shortly before his 30th birthday in 1958, Yutaka Taniyama killed himself. His friend, Goroshimura, who worked on the mathematics with him many decades later, reflected on Taniyama's life. He said, he was not a very careful person as a mathematician. He made a lot of mistakes. But he made mistakes in a good direction. I tried to emulate him, but I realized it is very difficult to make good mistakes. Thank you. Additional excellent examples to really hit home the point that we need to have intellectual humility. And it also, in this, this uh, trial of, of having people recover at home, uh, it, it's really interesting to hear uh, of the other doctor's uh, perspective. And he shocked them out of their preconceived notions because he recognizes that cognitive biases are strong and confirmation bias in particular, that, that when we think we know the answer, then we are going to look for data that supports our perspective, our frame of thinking. And we're going to ignore, uh, whether intentionally or not, we're going to ignore data that contradicts our beliefs, that contradict the way uh, we view things and contradict what we're so certain about. That's why paradigm shifts can be so difficult, whether it's in science, whether it's in societies, in business, whatever. Paradigm shifts can be so difficult because they challenge uh, the very foundation of what we think we know. So those who practice intellectual humility and who can fail but fail well, who can make mistakes but make good mistakes, mistakes that allow them to learn and grow, that that's what it's all about. That's how we, we challenge the God complex, where we can foster intellectual humility, and ultimately we can increase the chances of us having creative solutions to complex problems, innovative approaches to the, more, the most perplexing challenges that we face. That's certainly my hope in my own career, in my family. That's my hope for my neighborhood, for my community. That's my hope for any organization I work with. And if I can be committed to just challenging my own preconceived conceptions, then I'm going to be better equipped to come up with better solutions when the time comes. As always, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day, 
and I hope you have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.